Now we are turning back to the Word of God, and we trust the children and young people have all got their little sheets there with questions for tonight. If you don't have those, then you'll find them on one of the tables, either right here or right there. And I think there are nine or ten questions tonight that will be based on what I say from this moment on when we get to the preaching of the Word. And we're taking the topic tonight, it'll be the last in the series of four that we've done, two last Sunday morning, and then two today, two last Sunday morning and evening, and then two today, uh, the New King and the Old Bible was this morning, and from our Queen's own lips is the topic that we're looking at tonight, from our Queen's own lips. All of the answers are going to appear on screen, so keep your ears, ears, your ears open and your eyes peeled, and you'll be able to pick up the answers that will be coming. We'll stand for a word of prayer, brief word of prayer, change your position as we do so. Heavenly Father, again to Thee we come. Thou art the eternal God. We thank Thee that Thy words, they are well wed because they are absolutely perfect. The Word of God, we pray that it will have free course. That's what Paul pleaded for it to have, that it would be glorified, that I would reach into the hearts and the minds of people, and that I will produce the change that is necessary. And we know for those unsaved, then the change of conversion is absolutely necessary. Lord, we pray that we will magnify Thy name tonight, and may Christ Himself be lifted up because without Him and without His death and without His resurrection, there is no good news. There is no gospel to proclaim. Come and focus our minds on that. We pray in our Savior's blessed and holy name and for our benefit this evening. Amen. Thank you. Question as I begin tonight, are you careful about what you say? In other words, do you watch your words? Or are there occasions when you go away and you've said something, maybe a bit of an outburst, and as you walk away, you regret saying the words that you have used? Maybe on other occasions, my mother used to say this to me when I was growing up. She said, you'll eat your words. In other words, you've said something there, it's a big statement, but someday down the line, you're going to have to take those words back again because you'll say sorry for even expressing them. Eight years ago, the man who was the then Prime Minister of the United Kingdom was David Cameron. And he was embarrassed by something he said, and he said that I'm going to apologize again to the Queen. What he had done was he'd been talking to the mayor of New York, Michael Bloomberg, and he told him, do you know what happened? The Queen of England purred down the line. When I told her that Scotland had voted against independence. And later, the Prime Minister, David Cameron, said on the Andrew Marr show, BBC One, that I feel extremely sorry and very embarrassed because I have confirmed in public an open secret that the Queen had wanted Scotland to remain in the United Kingdom. Our Lord Jesus has told us that we will be judged according to our words. We read that tonight in the first Bible reading in Matthew chapter 12 and the verse 36 and 37, where our Lord says, 
every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Our Lord went further and deeper than that. He said, if I am going to measure what is in your heart, I'm going to determine that by what you're saying. Your heart will be indicated, the state of it will be made known by the words that you speak. And the argument is, if the heart is right, the words will be right. But if the heart is bad and wrong, then inevitably we're going to speak bad and bitter words as well. And what our Lord did back then was to compare our hearts and our words to a tree and the fruit that that tree would produce. And so again in our Bible reading in Matthew 12, the verse 37, uh, the verse 33 to 37, he says, either make the tree good and the fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. And he ends, as we've already quoted in verse 37, by your words, you should be justified. By your words, you will be, on the other hand, condemned. Now, the Apostle Paul, as we see here on screen, he had something to say about our words as well. And in Romans 10, the verse 9 and 10, two key verses about God's salvation. This chapter is key to the message of salvation, how it's received, how it is shown as well. He says, verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. What's Paul doing there? Well, instead of saying, if you want to get right with God, then just work and work and work and work and work, do enough good works, build them up, pile them up, make them mountainous, and then, of course, God, with your good works, is going to think this is a wonderful person in front of me here. No, he's not saying that. We must confess with our mouths what we are feeling in our hearts, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that He is the Messiah, that He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And we must believe also, we're told here, in our hearts, that God raised Jesus from the dead. And if we confess these things, we shall be saved. So what Paul is writing about is very important. And the question is, can I say these things with my mouth because, first of all, I believe them in my heart. Queen Elizabeth II was almost always extremely careful with her words. She chose them very well. Not so much Prince Philip by her side. But she did. Throughout her illustrious reign, she delivered 68 Christmas broadcasts to the Commonwealth. And all of those were speeches that came out of her own pen, written by her, and reached the ears of many millions of people. Apparently, the Queen was very nervous 
in giving those speeches. But if she was nervous, her father and her grandfather were even more so. When the tradition of the Christmas speech began in the time of her grandfather, King George V, the BBC had to cover his desk with a thick cloth to deaden the sound of him nervously rustling his papers. King George V said, that speech ruined my Christmas. Why then, over all these years, put yourself through this mental torture? And why do it year after year after year, in the Queen's case, for almost those 70 years of her reign? And why did she write her own speeches? Because it was a huge opportunity. An opportunity to tell the world what it needed to know. At the height of the popularity of those speeches, around about 1918, she was addressing an audience of 28 million people. Well, what did the Queen Elizabeth II want the world to know? When you search through those speeches over all of those years, you'll discover that she's including comments on world events, revealing news relating to the royal family. And those speeches also contain something of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, indicators you can find of her own personal faith in Christ, and appeals to her listeners to follow him. Some have said that her statements became more explicit, even more evangelical after the millennium. I am not saying that she did everything right, or even said everything correctly. She was queen, not a preacher. I can't take her into her speeches there and put them into homiletical class, a preaching class in the college, and start dissecting and analyzing as though she was a preacher. But what is beyond doubt is that she has left on record her views on several key biblical topics. And one is this. Our foundation is the Bible. Look again at the speeches. You'll find over the years that she described the Word of God in four major ways. First of all, it is the truth. She said, Christ revealed to us the truth in His teaching. Christmas message 1981, which leads me to conclude that in the Queen's estimate at least, the Bible is not a truth. It is not one of many truths. The Bible is the truth. And that's what our Lord said when He was writing in John 17, 17, inspiring the Bible writer to write it down, Thy word is truth. But the question is, is that what you, is that what I believe about the Bible, that it is truth? I find on many occasions in the Bible, that's exactly what it's claiming to be. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Titus 1 and 2, God who cannot lie. Psalm 12 and verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. God's Word, the Bible, is the truth. But then another way that she described it was 
But the Bible is the bedrock of faith. In her Christmas message, 2021, here's what she said. Jesus, a man whose teachings have been handed down from generation to generation and have been the bedrock of my faith. Now, I'm going to bring you briefly into geology class, and probably not many of you will ever do geology at school or haven't done geology at school. But in geology class, you'll learn that the bedrock is that solid rock within the crust of the earth. You'll learn that that bedrock is holding up the billions of tons and of stones and soil and sand and sea right across the earth. The bedrock, it upholds, it shapes contours, it maintains everything above it. And that is exactly what God's Word does. It acts as our great foundation. It holds up. It shapes. It maintains everything that's built upon it. And if you take away the bedrock, everything will collapse into chaos. You'll remember, I'm sure, what our Lord said in Matthew 7, the verse 24 to 27. He painted a picture there of two men. And they were looking for a foundation because they were going to build. And one decided, sand is enough. That was disastrous. The other one, he chose the solid rock on which to build. And our Lord said, that's a wise man. Because, you know, when the storm comes, when the floods come running in, there's a house that is going to stand because it is built upon a rock. It will not be moved. The poet said, the Bible stands like a rock on Daunted, mid the raging storms of time, its pages burn with the truth eternal, and they glow with a light sublime. The Bible stands, though the hills may crumble, it will firmly stand. When this earth shall crumble, I will plant my feet on its firm foundation, for the Bible stands. Let me ask you tonight, what is your bedrock? What is your foundation? What are you building your life upon? Are you, for example, leaning on the teaching of the Bible? Romans 6 and 23 tells us the wages of sinners is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Are you leaning on its teaching, on its promises as well? Our Lord has promised, John 3 and 16, classic, wonderful promise, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Are you leaning as well on its direction? Because Paul was absolutely convinced. If you're looking to get to Christ, you'll find a way in the Bible. If you're looking, having got to Christ by the leading of the Spirit of God, if you're looking how to live for Christ after you're saved, you're going to find it in the Bible. And that's what he wrote about in 2 Timothy 3, the verse 16 and 17, the Bible. It's profitable for all of these things. And then again, are you leaning on the Bible for its comfort? Many times in life, situations arise, problems develop, and you think the wheels have come off. And times are hard, and you're looking for comfort. The Bible tells us in Psalm 119, verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction, for thy word hath 
quickened me. Then again, taking one of the statements off the queen, she said, the Bible is our guide and source of hope. And I'm looking, and I think this might be one of the questions tonight, but I'm looking at a statement she made back in August of 2022, so very recent, throughout my life, the message and teachings of Christ have been my guide, and in them I find hope. Again, beliefs are fun of fundamental importance. For me, the teachings of Christ and my own personal accountability before God provide a framework in which I try to lead my life, Christmas of 2000. Also, 16 years later, billions of people now follow Christ's teachings and find in Him the guiding light for their lives. I am one of them. Now, when I hear her talk about the Bible being her guide and being her source of hope, I remember this. Our Queen has no shortage, had no shortage of advisors and counselors. There was a privy council that was made up of senior politicians. There was a common council as well. We have the senior bishops there in the Church of England, and we have 650 MPs, politicians, in the House of Parliament, and we have 756 peers in the House of Lords. You have an incredible array of counsellors there, and in much counsellors, there ought to be a little bit of wisdom somewhere along the line. But despite all of these Put together, she considered the Scriptures, by her own admission, to be more vital and more foundational than all of them. That's the vital thing. What is my guide? What is my light? Through life, nothing like the Word of God. It's the best. She also made a statement, and from that I derived the thought that the Bible does not change and does not need correction. Now, that really was flowing across and against the tide because so many people want to change the Bible. They say it needs to be corrected and all of that. She says it does not change, does not need correction. And the statement is this, to what greater inspiration and counsel can be turned than to the imperishable truth to be found in this treasure house, the Bible. Now, if you were to look on Google and find out how much value are the Queen's possessions, you'll find that she had an incredible array of jewelry, not to mention investments around the world, totaling millions upon millions. Balmoral Castle in Scotland, where she died on Thursday week ago, and by the way, because she died there, she actually died, believe it or not, a Presbyterian. She did. You can check it out. That's the law. But she was up there in Balmoral Castle worth an estimated 120 million. Sandringham House down in England, an estimated 50 million. She has a great collection of art in the United Kingdom, probably the greatest that we have here and maybe across the world, one of the very greatest. Over a million objects are in that art collection, and that's housed across 13 UK royal residences, 10 billion would be a conservative estimate when those would be totted up. So she was no stranger to value and possessions and treasures. 
And I find it therefore comforting to note that from the commencement to the conclusion of her reign, her assessment of the Bible remained constant. On the day of her coronation, a Bible was presented to her and described as the most valuable thing that this world affords. And in her final years, she echoed that high estimation when she described the Bible as, and we had the quote there a moment or two, a treasure house. What's your estimate of Scripture? How do you view the Bible? Do you think of it as treasure, worth more than anything else in the world? John Newton, famous preacher and hymn writer, said, Precious Bible, what a treasure. Does the Word of God afford all I want for life or pleasure, food and medicine, shield and sword? Let the world account me poor, having this. I need no more. Our foundation is the Bible. And then another message that I picked up from some of those comments made over the years, our forgiveness is found in Christ alone. Our forgiveness is found in Christ alone. It was the Queen's persuasion that a Savior who can provide a full and free pardon is of greater value than a philosopher who can teach you new ideas or theories or a general who can take an army onto the field and secure a victory in battle. And she emphasized a range of points about God's forgiveness. One was, it is greatly needed by everyone. That includes me. That includes you. Whether you realize it or not, you need, I need God's forgiveness. And here's the quote I'm referring to. God sent into the world a unique person. Neither a philosopher nor a general, important though they are, but a savior. With the power to forgive. It is my prayer that on this Christmas day we might all find room in our lives for the message of the angels and for the love of God through Christ our Lord that was delivered Christmas Day of 2011. Tell me, what does our modern world set great store by? Well, won't mom and dad and everybody else that knows you want you to do well in school? People prize education. They also respect might, because sometimes it's hard not to because you're bulldozed by it and you've little choice but to bow to superior power. But people do. They idolize education. Some of the most learned in history are philosophers leading way back to those Greek men, Aristotle and Plato, and no doubt we can bring them right up to our modern day. Philosophers, people also, as we've said, they idolize might. And so in history class in school, you're learning about Alexander the Great and Napoleon and many other generals that took to the field of battle and won many great victories in history. But to the queen, a savior was much more important. A philosopher can teach you and I theories. A general can give us victories. But a savior, and only a savior, can bring forgiveness of our sins. Not only is it greatly needed by everyone, but it's based upon the death and resurrection of Christ. Had you been, and some here, 
may well be able to go back to that time, the prayer at her coronation service. It was very explicit, the prayer, most humbly beseeching thee to grant that by the merits and death of thy Son, Jesus Christ, and through faith in his blood, we and all thy whole church may obtain remission of our sins and all other benefits of his passion. Queen Elizabeth II, not just as explicitly, but did say later in 2000, Jesus Christ was born 2,000 years ago. This is the true millennium anniversary. In his early 30s, he was arrested, tortured, and crucified with two criminals. His death might have been the end of the story, but then came the resurrection, and with it, the foundation of the Christian faith. What do I find in the Word of God? I find the Bible is teaching me. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15 and 3, Christ died for our sins. I read as well in 1 Peter 2 and verse 24 that Christ, His own self, bare my sins in His own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins might live unto righteousness by whose stripes, not by my efforts, but by whose stripes ye were healed. I also read, in the book of Romans, the chapter 4, the verse 25, that while Christ was delivered for our offenses, dying for our sins, he was raised again for our justification. And rising out of that grave three days after he died, he is proving the debt for our sin was paid. Rising from the dead. He is able to hear the prayers of those who are pleading for his forgiveness and give that forgiveness to them. The basic rule is this, no resurrection, no forgiveness, because that resurrection of Jesus Christ is so foundational to our faith. Not only that about forgiveness, it is immediate. In 2011, the queen quoted the last verse of that beautiful carol, O little town of Bethlehem, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray, cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. In the lines of the carol, there shine the spotlight on this truth, that whenever you or I or anyone else seeks forgiveness from our Lord Jesus Christ, based on his death and his resurrection, when do we receive that forgiveness? Do we receive it? Some years after we perform this work and that work and another work of so-called goodness, kind of payment for what we've done. No, we don't. Do we receive it at the end of our lives and only then as we're passing over the edge and out into eternity? It's only at the last second it's confirmed whether we're in Christ or not and whether we're forgiven or not. Or do we have to wait way beyond the grave and in that imaginary place, that invented place called purgatory, maybe 100 years down the line into eternity, we eventually discover, oh, we have done enough and other people have done enough for us and we are out of purgatory forgiveness has come in. No, no, no. Forgiveness is granted by Christ to the soul that calls upon him immediately. Not only that, this forgiveness prompts love. It prompts love. Having highlighted the searching question 
in another carol in the bleak midwinter. The question there is, what can I give him? Poor as I am. She concluded the proper answer is right in the carol itself. Yet what can I give him? Give my heart. In a recent sermon by my son-in-law, Reverend Paul Foster, so I'm taking some of his material here and gladly because it's very good. He explained how Christ deserves our love, and he pulled in an illustration using a question and an answer, and he asked the question initially, who has done more for you? Who has done more for you? I mean, teachers have taught you. Friends have supported you. You may have a church that has prayed for you. Parents who have done their very best in raising you. By the way, the independent newspaper told us the average mother spends 98 hours per week on parenting duties. That's the equivalent of two and a half jobs, full-time jobs. According to the Child Poverty Action Group, the total cost of raising a child to the age of 18 is around £160,000. Who has done more for you? But I tell you, impressive though this is, it is nothing compared with what Christ has done for us. You see, parents may give up money, but Christ gave up heaven to come to us. Parents may sacrifice time that they could have spent in a coffee shop or something, along with friends and having a nice chinwag about all the issues of the day, and they could surrender that just to look after their children. Christ gave up time with his father and what time that would have been. Parents can give up luxury items. Christ gave up the praise of ten thousands of angels. Parents, they can give up many hours. Christ gave the entirety of his life and also eventually his own blood shed on Calvary. Parents may suffer and they do a lack of sleep. Christ suffered the wrath of God the equivalent of eternal hell for our sin. Parents may suffer disappointment. Maybe when your school report comes in through the door and dad or mom look at it and they think, what has he or she been doing the last number of months? Because it hasn't translated any work they have done into these results. And parents can suffer disappointment. Christ suffered the rejection of his father. My God, my God, he cries in Calvary, why hast thou forsaken me? No one, I repeat, no one has given you more. Now, what does he ask of us? Eternal debt? Infinite debt? No, we have his words recorded in Proverbs 23, 26. My son, give me thine heart. Matthew 22, the verse 37, our Savior says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. And why would we not, given what he has given to us, give him our heart? What shall I bring to the Savior? What shall I lay at his feet? 
I have no glittering jewels, no gold, no frankincense sweet. What shall I bring to the Savior? Love that is purest and best, life in its sweetness and beauty, all for his service so blessed. Our foundation is in the Bible. Our forgiveness is found in Christ alone. And finally, our faithfulness is a response to God's faithfulness. Our faithfulness is a response to God's faithfulness. Many people over the past number of days have been talking about the loyalty, the faithfulness, the many years of elongated service that the Queen has given the nation. She understood that she could only be faithful to people as God had been faithful to her. And she had to continue to reciprocate that faithfulness to him and to others she believed. The God was faithful to give wisdom and strength. That just as he'd done to other kings in the past, we read of one in the Bible, King Solomon, classic example, as he'd given him wisdom and strength, so he could do for her. So right at the beginning, Christmas message, 1952, Pray for me, that first Christmas broadcast, that God may give me wisdom and strength to carry out the solemn promises I shall be making, and that I may faithfully serve Him and you all the days of my life. Before that, five years before that, on her 21st birthday, 1947, in a radio address, she said, I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. But I shall not have strength to carry out this resolution alone unless you join it with me as I now invite you to do. God help me to make good my vow. He alone. You need wisdom? Of course you do. Strength? Of course you do. He is the provider of that. God is also faithful to answer prayer. I quote from the servant queen, the foreword there, I have been and remain very grateful to you for your prayers and to God for his steadfast love. I have indeed seen his faithfulness. Faithful to answer prayer. He's faithful through the most difficult of times. You'll remember our queen talked about an annus horribilis, a horrible year, when anything that could have gone wrong did go wrong. In her Christmas message 2002, she said, I know just how much I rely on my own faith to guide me through the good times and the bad. Each day is a new beginning. I know that the only way to live my life is to try to do what is right, to take the long view, to give my best in all that the day brings, and to put my trust in God. Times are hard. I need a faithful God to cling to, and so do we. It is God's faithfulness that prompts us to be faithful to Him and to serve others in His name. Christmas message, 2002, it was a time to remind ourselves, as the Christmas story does every year, that we must never forget the plight of the disadvantaged and excluded, and that we must respond to the needs of those who may be in distress or despair. And then in 2014 as well, 
Uh, we have her saying, For me, the life of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, whose birth we celebrate today, is an inspiration and an anchor in my life, a role model of reconciliation and forgiveness. He stretched out his hands in love, acceptance, and healing. It's reading a little bit about a school teacher from Kentucky way back years ago, Thomas Chisholm. And he wrote the wonderful hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, O God my Father. Part of that says, Pardon for sin and the peace that endureth, Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide, Strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow, Blessings all mine with ten thousand beside. What a hymn expressive of the faithfulness of our God. When we take the Bible as our foundation for life. Lord, give me grace to build upon that. When we take God's forgiveness, plead with Him for it. Lord, grant that to me, cleansing for my sin on the basis of His perfect life and His atoning death. That's the only way to be forgiven. Then we'll find Him faithful to us, every step of the journey towards heaven, our eternal home. What's the best way? I know many people will be gathering tomorrow in London, many people watching in. What's the best way? To show our gratitude to God for His faithfulness, His faithfulness to Queen Elizabeth II throughout her reign. It's by searching for Him in His own unchanging Word. It's by seeking His salvation, by turning from sin, and to the only Savior, Christ Jesus. It's by drawing our daily strength, as the Queen said she did, from the message of hope in the Christian gospel. He is the answer, the only Redeemer. May we find forgiveness and a life worth living in Him.